and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 156, Lacking Everything But Courage. Last time, with the launch of Operation Barbarossa, the Wehrmacht and SS divisions were expecting to outdo their incredible achievements in the West. The Totenkopf and Polizei divisions were with Army Group North, but had been severely bloodied even before reaching the Luga Line, the last defensive line, before Leningrad. In truth, their fanatic loyalty to Hitler was much appreciated, but that did not give them automatic insights into tactics. Even more, their officers, even more loyal to the Nazi leader, equally lacked knowledge of the finer points of modern combat, and this was getting them and their men killed at an alarming rate. As we have seen, this left Army Group North Commander Field Marshal von Lieb none too impressed with his SS divisions. Hence, changes were made. The Totenkopf were pulled back and put with General von Victorin's 28th Army Corps, while the Polizei were moved up and quickly trounced by the Soviet defenders. And by mid-August, the men of the Totenkopf, including their officers, were in a Cold War with Victorin's staff, the Hate Mutual. It was then that Stalin, no military genius either, decided to squander his troops by launching a series of counterattacks against the Germans. The first serious one came on August 14th, as eight infantry divisions and a cavalry corps of the Soviet 34th Army hit the line of the 10th Army Corps, just below Lake Ilmen. Manstein was ordered to remove this threat to Army Group North's right flank, and to help him, he was given the Totenkopf Division. So, instead of glaring at Victorin's men, the SS soldiers found themselves attempting to salvage the furthest German penetration in the North thus far. Step one of Manstein's plan was telling 10th Corps to hold the line along the river Polist. As this went a good ways, if the Soviets wanted to push any further west, they would have to commit, hopefully, all or most of their men in this counterattack. So when Manstein came at them, they would have few to no troops in reserve, and the less experienced Soviets fell for this. The Soviets came on, but the men of the 10th Corps were able to hold them up along the Polist. While this was going on, Manstein gathered the Totenkopf and the 3rd Motorized Division and would have them hit the attackers on their left flank, near to where the line of this counterattack ended. The two motorized divisions, the Totenkopf and the 3rd, pushed into the enemy on the morning of August 19th. It took all day. The shocked Soviet troops before them were thinking they would be the ones moving forward, but dealt with this setback as best they could. But by nightfall, the two German divisions had reached the bridges of the Polist and took possession. As the bulk of the Soviets in the area had crossed over the river, despite Manstein's orders, they were now trapped. But even this was factored in by Manstein. With the bridges in German hands, the motorized divisions sent men along their side of the river to encircle the now-stunned enemy troops. August 20th saw the circle completed and tightened. That night, German artillery rained down destruction 
on the trapped Soviet troops. And when the sun rose on the 21st, the Totenkopf and 3rd Motorized Division moved in, killing all before them. When the day was over, so was the Soviet army. Those that survived, there were a few, were now POWs, and their torment had only begun. Now that the area was cleared of Soviet defenders, and the bridges of the Polest were in German hands, Manstein ordered the two motorized divisions to drive east, and with the area clear of defenders, the Germans were able to cross the next two rivers that ran north to south, until they reached the third river before them, the Pola. In truth, there had been remains of Soviet troops in their way, but as the defenders were outgunned, exhausted, demoralized, and outmaneuvered, they presented little trouble. In fact, the onset of heavy rains did more to slow down the SS division and the 3rd than the Soviets. The Russians took what men they had in the area and placed them along the Pola, so between their resistance and the rain that turned the ground into mud pits, the Germans' advance came to a halt. But then, on September 7th, the skies cleared, the ground dried, well, enough for the trucks and towed artillery to move out. The Pola was crossed, and the Soviets pushed back a few more miles, reaching the town of Demansk on September 12th. As the threat first posed to the Germans back on August 14th was clearly over, the line was redrawn here. To go any further would risk exposing the German flanks, as Hitler's order said to encircle Leningrad, to starve it out. But what neither side could know was that this temporary halt would be as far as the Germans got for Armored Group North. In time, Stalin would learn the lesson of squandering his men and material, and instead build a wall that the enemy could not afford the losses it would take to storm it. Yet, as if the German high command could sense that this dash was over, Manstein was removed from this temporary position and told to take command of the 11th Army, which would be fighting in the Crimea. Meanwhile, the Toltenkopf was moved to the 2nd Army Corps, basically the unit in this area, and told to build up their own defenses along the Pola River. The last thing Army Group North needed was another massive counterattack as it worked on reducing the defenses around Leningrad. But as this last part is hindsight, this being the early phase of Barbarossa, the SS assumed, as did the Wehrmacht in the area, that the Soviet troops before them were at the end of their tether and would collapse once offensive operations were started up again, whenever that was. For now, the SS Toltenkopf welcomed the rest and stationary work of defense construction. In part, the Toltenkopf's change of orders came at the behest of Divisional Commander Eck, as he was back at the front and had taken up his position. He saw the shambles his men were in, their losses, their lack of non-commissioned officers, the lack of new equipment, and thus shot off letters to those serving under Himmler. He also restarted the ideological instruction sessions again, as he did not want his men to ever forget why they were here and that the outcome was a foregone conclusion, as their country 
and countrymen were superior to the communists. As Eck and his Totenkopf strengthened their line, word came in that the Soviets were building up for another counteroffensive. This certainly motivated the SS to redouble their efforts, and it must be remembered that Stalin had not quite yet learned his lesson, as he was eager to take back his territory, though the overall situation was not yet propitious for such a move. And sure enough, on September 24th, Soviet planes started their day by bombing the Toltenkov and the units to their right and left. Indeed, another attack was coming, but nothing the SS men could not handle, knowing as they did that the enemy would simply charge right at them and die quickly, in large numbers. As Eck and his men kept their heads down, he sent out messages, really questions. Where in the hell was the Luftwaffe? No satisfactory answer or friendly plane manifested. Then came the pre-attack artillery barrages. Though not as accurate as German fire would have been, the enemy tried to make up for this with intensity. But the Totenkopf had been through this before as well. Then, on schedule, came the Soviet infantry charges. As the SS readied their large guns, they noticed something different this time. The Russian troops were mixed with massed tanks, and the majority of them came at the Totenkopf. The tip of the spear of this counterattack came at Kleinheisterkamp's 3rd Infantry Regiment, who was stationed in the town of Lushno. As they were hit with a mix of armor defended by riflemen, the regiment fell back. Yet before the day was over, they regrouped and went over to the offensive. This back and forth would go on for three days, neither side able to take and hold the town. But showing that the Soviets were learning, they employed old-school tactics the next day, the 25th. Just north of Lushno, the Soviets were about to attack to encircle the town. The direct assaults were losing too many men, but they knew that the area to the north was shielded by a minefield laid down by the SS. Hence, the Soviets drove a large group of pigs into the area to set off the mines. For whatever reason, the rush of animals did not detonate enough mines to make the attack feasible, so the attack there failed. But it showed the Soviets, having lost many of their officers to Stalin's purges, were starting to think outside the box. As the battle for Lushno went back and forth for those three days, the Toltenkov found themselves without enough 5cm anti-tank guns to take and hold the town. The question of where in the hell these guns were going was for management, i.e. Eck, and for a later date. For now, what to do? The answer, rather strangely, came from Eck, who was not a military man, but a brute and a quasi-politician, who just happened to have read every military book he could get his hands on when he was brought in to the SS. And his solution was direct, simple, and very dangerous, yet less dangerous than taking on an enemy a tank without the proper equipment. His idea was to create tank-killing squads of 12 men each. They were only to operate in the town itself, as the buildings allowed them 
to sneak up on the metal beasts. As eleven men drove the tank's infantry protection away with guns and grenades, the remaining lucky team member would climb on to the back of the tank, place an explosive under the tank's turret overhang, then place a grenade with a shortened fuse next to the explosive. Then he would run like hell, and after the explosion, the tank was damaged. If all went to plan, the tank crew would then exit and be shot by the eleven men, covering for their brave but foolhardy comrade. But things did not always go smoothly. If the designated man froze out of fear or his trembling hands took too long, he was either killed by his own device or allowed the tank's rifle support to take him out. It required speed, audacity, and zeal. But then again, most, if not all, of the SS troops at this point in time were zealots. By process of elimination, the weak links were weeded out, and X plan became quite effective, holding up the Soviets' ability to take and hold Lushno. As the tank killers stymied the Soviet counterattack, which was led by its armor, the Russians switched up their game by trying to focus just south of the town, so the SS could not sneak up on their armor. But the dug-in large Krupp guns made that a no-go as well, so the Soviets switched back to taking the town. This wasn't as desperate as it sounds. By then, the SS 3rd Infantry Regiment had been whittled down. It took time for ex-tank killer teams to get up to snuff, and their armor had been sent somewhere else to deal with another breakthrough. No, whatever happened here was up to the infantrymen. And if they were pushed aside, the Soviets, with their buildup of tanks, their mass artillery, and numerous infantry, would have been able to get miles behind the front line, throwing the Germans' entire defensive line into a quandary. Eck even had his headquarters staff prepared to head to the front. The Soviets came again on September 26th, their tanks led, which pushed the tank-killing teams into action. But not waiting to see how this turned out, the Russian infantry was also sent in, in vast numbers. The Totenkopf infantry gave it all they had, and for the next two days, they had no idea if they were winning or not, but simply focused on putting out fires in the form of one potential enemy breakthrough after another. The Russians were falling in staggering numbers, but so too were the men of the SS. Still, both sides fed men into this inferno. This went on for 48 hours, but even then, by the end of the first day, every officer of the 3rd Regiment's 2nd Battalion was dead. Still, their men fought on, as whomever was next in line was given a field promotion and told to hold the line. By September 28th, the battalion had lost 889 men, now down to just 150, and that was when they were told to charge forward and retake the town. And they did, which caused the Soviets to call off their offensive by the end of the day. It was an amazing success, a feat of bravery or madness, but they showed the German people back home that an Aryan would always best a Slav 
though at a horrendous cost. Yet the 3rd Infantry had not carried the day alone. Other SS units were to the north of the town, and their exploits contributed to the Soviets' withdrawal. The greatest example of this was carried out by Sturman Fritz Christian. His actions during the fighting were as follows. Christian was an artilleryman of an anti-tank battalion, and starting on September 24th, his position just happened to be in the middle of an enemy armor thrust. During the attack, his entire company was wiped out. Yet Christian manned his 5cm anti-tank gun, and he destroyed six tanks that were barreling down on him. As his gun was the only thing keeping him alive, he stayed there, unable to take the time to call anyone, for two days. Never leaving his weapon, the next day, another seven tanks came at him, and again, one by one, he took them out, operating the gun by himself. The Soviets could not know or guess that he was alone. Perhaps they would have sent in infantrymen if they had. But the tanks were leading the charge. The enemy soldiers stayed back until their armor could secure the area. Not until the 27th did German reinforcements arrive. All around Christian were his dead comrades. Before him, the shells of 13 enemy tanks. Eck when he heard of this, did not hesitate to award Christian the Iron Cross, first class, and recommended that he be given the Knight's Cross. This was done later by Hitler himself. Christian was the first SS enlisted man to receive the Knight's Cross. The Totenkopf, former prison camp guards, were now seen in the same light as the best units of the German army. The next month, on October 16th, Army Group Center tried, again, to take Moscow. But, as we have seen, they simply did not have the men or tanks to break through Stalin's line of defense. So, as it grew colder, both sides settled down to building up their defensive lines, which allowed the SS to go back to their other purpose, anti-partisan cleansing of their respective areas. By November, heavy rains came, followed by nights of 29 degrees below Fahrenheit. By this time, one of the Totenkopf men, who had been wounded previous to September, returned to his units. Yet, he recognized no one. All his friends were gone, dead or behind the line themselves, dealing with their own wounds. And though he made new friends, he felt as if this new lot were not of the same quality of his missing comrades. For one, the replacements were Germans, but not from Hitler's Germany. Eck certainly felt that they were not of the same caliber as well, and asked Himmler that they be trained longer before being sent out, which was not really possible, as the Totenkopf had lost 9,000 men since Barbarossa had begun. What's more, the replacements only numbered some 5,000. Eck wasted no time in asking for more men and for winter clothing, as the SS had none. But neither did the regular army, as the fall of Moscow was to have been achieved by this point. So Eck asked, in his own particular way, 
that the Totenkopf be pulled out of the line. But those orders never came. His men spent November and December trying to keep their weapons in working order, while also trying not to freeze to death. Not that it helped Eck, but if he had known of the circumstances of Kampfgruppe Nord fighting in northern Finland, he would have counted himself lucky. 